Um, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news, but uh, there's been some pretty damaging bushfires that have killed at least nine people in Northern California. And it's gone through a town called Paradise, which is a bit sad that it's called Paradise, but the town is basically almost completely destroyed. This is a picture of it. Six and a half thousand homes uh, have been uh, destroyed by this fire. Now, most of you will not have heard of Paradise, but you probably have heard of Malibu. Yeah? Malibu is about 800 kilometers to the south, uh, closer to LA. And because of the winds picking up, the fires actually begun to sweep down south. And so Malibu, where a lot of celebrities uh, like Lady Gaga live, um, they've tweeted that they've had to evacuate as well. Such is the seriousness of these fires. So um, if you're the praying type, this is, I think, something you pray for, for um, people in America. But it's a reminder, of course, that summer is around the corner for us. And that means for us bushfire season. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, looked at the different types of threat levels that... um, get warned when it comes to bushfire season. But um, depending on the threat level with Australian bushfire summer, uh, you'll have different types of action that you're supposed to take. So um, I'm not sure if you realize, but everything from low to even very high, it's the same sort of action bracket, which is uh, you should review your fire plan. If you look at at the slides, uh, if Do you have a fire plan? I don't, but if you have a fire plan, you should review it. Uh, Monitor the conditions, see how it's going. Be ready to act if necessary, right? It's a sort of don't get too alarmed, but just watch and wait. But then if it goes to the next level, which is severe, then if you don't have a fire plan, then get ready to leave. And of course, the next level is extreme, which is even if you have a fire plan, you should leave unless your home happens to be some sort of titanium bunker or something, all right? And then if the next level comes, the catastrophic level, then what are you waiting for? You should run now. The different threat levels uh, will mean different responses. And that's why we have this warning system. Now, in Mark chapter 13, that Hongi just read for us, and I want you to keep open. It's very important that you keep it open because it's quite a long chapter, quite a lot of details. We get Jesus letting us know of threat levels. Jesus is giving us warnings about the end. Now, Jesus is in the final days of his life, in the last few days before he goes to the cross. And where he is, at the beginning of the chapter, he and his disciples are looking at this temple, Israel's magnificent temple in its, in its capital, Jerusalem. And as they look on its glory, he speaks of the temple's final destruction. And he's going to give some threat-level warnings. But you know, it's not just going to be about the end of the temple that Jesus is speaking about. Because as we'll see, it's also going to be about the end of the world. And that's why Jesus' words are relevant to us today, 2018. Because he's going to give us warnings. And it's important for us to know where the threat level is and what the action that we need to take is. Especially if that threat level is rising. The Bible is consistent on this point that the world will end one day. It's not going to end with a whimper, it will end with a bang when Jesus returns to judge. And so God wants you to think about, God wants me to think about today, whether we are ready for that. And this is one of those chapters where we do need to pay attention to make sure we're ready. So let me pray and then we'll actually dip in. Father God, help us this afternoon with a difficult passage to see clearly, understand well, 
But more importantly, help us to know what it is to keep watch, to be aware, and to be on guard and be ready for when your son Jesus, our Lord, returns. Amen. Uh, There's an outline for you, and today probably will be a helpful thing to follow along. Um, So we're up to point number one, and 1A should read context, not content. Typo. So uh, beginning of Mark 13, uh, we open up in Jerusalem right after Mark chapter 12, which we looked at one part of last week. But Mark 12, Jesus has seven confrontations with the Jewish leadership or the leaders of the Jewish nation. And then in verse 1, they're going through the temple complex, which is right in the heart of Jerusalem. And one of Jesus' disciples marvel at how beautiful the temple is. Now, the temple we're talking about is the temple, uh, otherwise known as King Herod's temple. Uh, Herod wasn't a real king, he was sort of a puppet king installed by the Romans. One of the things that Herod did was he did a massive refurbishment of the temple. So much so that it's actually known as Herod's temple, even though he didn't build all of it. And it was such a beautiful, marvelous refurb. It took 40 years, by the way, over 40 years to refurb the temple, that it became one of the wonders of the ancient world. And someone once said this, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life, right? He who has not seen this temple hasn't ever seen a beautiful building in his life. Um, The temple complex that Herod expanded became so large that it was the size of 40, that's four zero, football fields. Imagine how big that is, 40 football fields. The marble slabs that he used is white stones to build some parts of the temple. Some of the slabs were so big, they were 20 meters long. That's half an Olympic pool. That's just one slab of marble. One of the ancient historians, which we'll meet a few times today, called Josephus, he said it made the temple from a distance look like a snow-covered mountain because of this white stone. And you'll see there um, those columns, right, at the back? There's 162 of those columns. They're massive. 162 columns in four rows, each of them 12 meters high. And each column was so thick or wide that it would take three men linking arms to hug it. That's how big these columns were. That building in the center, the central building, is 45 meters high. That's a 13-story apartment. That's higher than most apartment buildings in Bankstown. And here it is. It's covered in gold. The whole central thing was covered in gold. Again, Josephus says that it, when the sun is reflected on it, it's like this fiery glow and you can't actually look at it because it burns your eyes, so you have to look away. That's what the temple looked like. It was marvelous. It was magnificent. And no wonder one of Jesus' disciples said, look at that. Look at that. But more than just a, a thing of beauty, the temple was right at the center of what it meant to be Jewish. It was their social and religious and political center. Now, they didn't have their own kings anymore. They didn't govern themselves anymore. right? They were under Roman rule. But as long as they had the temple, that was their security. As long as they had the temple, they thought, we are still the people of God. And so when Jesus says in verse 2 these words, it would have been absolutely shocking to them. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus said? Not one stone here, not one of these beautiful, huge 20-meter marble slabs or these massive 162 columns. Not one of them will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, that would have been a shocking statement to hear. It's 
especially after you've just stepped out of that temple and marveled at how beautiful and how solid and how strong and glorious it is. Jesus pronounces the end of the temple, which would, for the Jew, be the end of their world. But Jesus hasn't just said that out of the blue, because if you've been with us in, in, in Mark's gospel, it's been at least a couple of chapters, since at least chapter 10, Jesus has been pronouncing God's coming judgment on the temple, on the center of the Jewish religion. You remember the cursing of the fig tree and so on. He's been saying all along, it's got to go. So Jesus makes a shocking statement. And of course, the disciples are going to want to ask more questions. And so they relocate now out of Jerusalem. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is opposite Jerusalem, but a little bit higher. So you can see all of that. You still see the temple from a distance. And they ask, verse 4, well, tell us, Jesus, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all to be fulfilled? Now, what's important to note here is that they are talking about these things and they, and we've just seen these things and they are referring to the temple. They're asking Jesus, when is the end coming, the destruction that you've, you've, you've said will happen to the temple? That's really important. Mark 13 is about the end of the world. It is about the second coming, but that only comes later. As I'll show you in a moment, the first major section of Mark 13 is actually talking about a very specific end, and it's the end of the temple in Jerusalem. That's the context. That's the immediate view. But it does deal with the end of the world because those two things are linked, and I'm going to spell that out later on. But I want to show you how Mark 13 is structured for those of you who like having things to hang things on. And especially if you looked at it during community groups this week, um, if you'd like to join a community group, come and see me because they're great ways to often meet people and also dip into the Bible passage before we have a look at it on Sunday. But you've got here, really, the temple is the, and the end of the temple is the first section right up to verse 23. And then verse 24, Jesus will then switch to talk about the end of all things, the second coming. And then he'll finish with two parables, two stories or examples or metaphors with a moral. The first one will come back to the temple, the fig tree one. And then the second one will come back to the second coming. That's basically the structure. And we're going to work through that broadly. So anyway, um, let's think about firstly, the first kind of signs that Jesus talks about. So I'm up to point 1B, what he calls birth pain signs. So verse 5, let's pick it up there. Verse 5. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Remember, he's answering the question, when will these things happen? When will the destruction of the temple happen? And Jesus says, I'm going to point you to some signs, but they're not going to be the signs that it's going to happen. These are just what he calls, when you see these things, they're just birth pains or labor pains. Now, uh, those of you who uh, have given birth here, that's not me, um, but you'll know that the average first labor for your first baby is average is 12 hours it takes between first contractions and actually delivery. And that's just the average. My sister, I think her first labor was like 24 hours. And so if you at first contractions decide to head 
to hospital, often they'll send you back home to wait it out because your cervix hasn't dilated properly, fully yet. And so you're going to have to wait anyway. All right? The first labor pains are painful, but they're not the real thing. It's going to take some time. And that's what Jesus is saying here. All right? These are the earthquakes, famines. They seem terrible, wars. But you know what? Threat level is still on the first level. Remember that bushfire threat level? Threat level is still on the first level. Your job is to watch and wait. Don't run screaming out of your house just yet. That's what Jesus is saying. These are just birth pains. And the reason why he wants to tell us this in advance is because it's easy to get alarmed when you hear all these things. I mean, the world for the last 2,000 years, even before then, has always had wars, famines, and sometimes a concentration. It's easy to get alarmed and overly anxious. And especially, Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't let people make you think it's the end before it's the end. Now, even in our day, often you'll get wacky things like this. Did anyone see this either on social media or maybe you were in the city and you saw one of these signs? Right, just before September the 20th, on the 20th of September, there was supposed to be a huge tsunami that was going to kill 400,000 people in Sydney. Um, well, it didn't happen. I don't know if you thought it happened. It didn't happen. It really didn't. And, it, you know, people come up with these things and it's easy to be deceived, right? And Jesus says, don't be deceived when you hear rumors, even when you see things that make you think maybe this is it. No, it's not. They're just birth pains. They're just birth pain signs. And so he wants us to be on guard and he wants his disciples, especially verse 13, to stand firm because, and we won't read the next little bit, remember he talks about you will be persecuted, you will be betrayed. That's going to be part of these birth pains and part of these times. You're going to be brought before kings and governors. And when that happens, Jesus says, trust that God will give you the words to say, but stand firm. Don't panic. Now you skip forward a few books of the Bible, skip forward a few decades and the book of Acts, the early church, and you'll see the disciples faced exactly that. They were brought before kings and governors on trial, and God did give them the words to say. And he always does for his people who are persecuted, even today. All right, but that's just the birth pains. That's the threat level warning one, watch and wait. But then we come to verse 14, and the key sign happens. So verse 14, let's read those verses again. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it doesn't belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because these will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would survive. But for the sake of his elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. All right, you see now there's a difference. There was the birth pain signs. Don't pay too much attention to those signs. But now if you see this sign, something's got to change. You've got to now take action, right? Threat level changes. And, and he calls it the abomination that causes desolation. Now that is a mouthful. Try to say that 10 times in a row. Don't, but try it later on. Uh, what does it mean? Okay, let's break it down. Abomination. An abomination is something that you find disgusting. 
So some people would say durian is an abomination. And you would be wrong because durian is lovely and it's wonderful and it's delicious. But anyway, that's just my opinion. So an abomination is something loathsome and disgusting and detestable, uh, makes you want to turn away in horror, makes you want to throw up. That's an abomination. Desolation, well, to be desolated or desolate is to be abandoned, to be ruined. Um, like that picture of that town, paradise, having been gutted through by fire, that's desolation. So an abomination that causes desolation is something that's going to be so utterly disgusting that it causes ruin and desertion and abandonment. That's the sign to watch out for, Jesus says. Now, we need to also have a look at the background to that phrase because it's not the first time in the Bible that you read of an abomination that causes desolation. He's drawing from the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel, who was prophesying a few hundred years before Jesus while the Jewish people were in Babylon, in exile. And Daniel is prophesying of a time after the exile, when the Jews have returned to their land, and when the Jews have rebuilt their temple. But then a foreign king is going to come and cause great suffering. And let me show you one of the passages. He says it about three times in Daniel. This is the first one, and we'll just look at this one. You can look up the other ones later. Where Daniel talks about this king who will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Daniel looks to his future. And this future was fulfilled, this prophecy was fulfilled in 167 BC. As I said, after the Jews had returned to the land, rebuilt the temple, but then they were conquered by the Greek Empire, and the Greek king Antiochus IV steps into Jerusalem, conquers it, and sets up an altar right in the temple on top of God's altar, and he sacrifices pigs to a Greek god. That's an abomination that causes desolation. Now Jesus is picking up that image from Daniel, and he's saying, look, that kind of thing will happen again. And given that Daniel's abomination is about the temple and an abomination that happens in the temple, I think it's fair to see, given the context of Mark 13, that Jesus is also talking about something of the same nature. There's going to be an abomination that causes desolation also, Jesus saying, in our future, in his future, that is the warning sign for us. And when that happens, the alert level rises from very high, or the first category, to catastrophic all right? Now, Jesus says, when you see that, what are you waiting for? You need to run and don't look back. Okay, so that's the first part of Mark 13. Now, you'll need to know that all happened. All right, Jesus' words came true. About 40 years after Jesus spoke these words in the year 70 AD. A few years earlier, 66 AD, the Jews in Judea under Roman rule decided to rebel. And Rome does what it does when their subjects rebel, which is it sends an army to destroy the rebellious nation. And it sends an army under the general and the future emperor Titus, and it begins its conquest of Judea. In 67 AD, a year after the rebellion, the Jewish rebels headed by the zealots, they're called the zealots, um, depending on your perspective, they're either terrorists like Al-Qaeda or they're freedom fighters. 
Depends on which side you're on. Well, what they do is they take over the temple and make the temple in Jerusalem their headquarters. Now, that is a shocking thing to do because if you know about the temple, and I explained a couple of weeks ago, not anyone can go into the temple. Only the priests, only those who are ritually pure to offer sacrifices. And yet these zealots now make it their HQ. And there's a good reason to believe that this might have been the abomination that causes desolation. Because the high priest at that time said this, I'll just quote him. He said, certainly it had been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations. Or these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random, filled with the feet of those blood-shedding villains. The zealots weren't popular with all Jews. And especially when they took over the temple. In 70 AD, a few years later after that, the walls of Jerusalem were breached and it was a pretty short siege, only about five months, which is short for ancient siege warfare. Usually, uh, sometimes sieges would take a year, sometimes years. But Jesus did say in verse 20 that the Lord would cut short these days, so that may be a reason why. But even though it was a short siege, what happened next is nothing than utter destruction. You thought the fire in California was bad? This was worse. The soldiers set fire to the entire city and indiscriminately began slaughtering its civilians. Josephus, who was the historian, Jewish historian, alive at that time, this is what he writes. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher above the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. The temple mount, everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base. Yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. He records that over one million people were killed. About 500, they said, were crucified per day. Nearly 100,000 were captured and enslaved. That was the kind of distress of those days. It would have been utterly horrible, especially if you were a Jew. What's left of the temple now? Herod's great temple. Well, that's what's left of the temple. One wall, otherwise known as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, which is still there today, but it's the only remnant of that temple. You see, Jesus' words came true, didn't they? Judgment came on God's Old Testament people, Israel, its leadership, the temple, that fruitless fig tree we saw a couple of weeks ago. All of it happened, as Jesus said in verse 30, this generation will certainly not pass away. His generation. Within a generation of the hearers of Jesus, it all happened. Now, in case you're wondering what happened to Christians in Jerusalem, did they see the threat level warning, the abomination, and did they flee? Well, history tells us actually they did. Very few Christians, if any, were caught and killed in Jerusalem, even Jewish Christians, because they had fled to a nearby town called Pella. You can Google about it. Because they listened to Jesus' warning, which is recorded, one of the places recorded is for us here in Mark 13. 
You see, we would do well to remember that Jesus always keeps his word, not just about this, but about everything. But this is a really clear example, right? You look in history, you see it. It's happened. It's happened. You know, for the Jews, the destruction of the temple was like the end of their world, as they knew it. All of their social, political, national, religious security, all gone in the space of a few years. When the end comes for us, the same thing will happen to our security. So it's always worth asking when you read passages like this, what are we holding on to? What is our security? And what's going to happen to it when it's all gone? Which leads me to my second point. Now, sometimes when you're driving in a place like New Zealand, you're going to see a mountain up ahead and Jess is still probably there or she's on her way back, but she's not back here yet. Um, and you think, wow, that's a beautiful mountain. It's a huge mountain. Only when you get there, you realize it's not one mountain, but two. All right, or two peaks, one hiding behind the other. From the front, it looks like one. If you turn 90 degrees to the side, it's actually two. Now, that's a little bit like what's going on here when it comes to the end. You see, Mark 13 is the front-on view. It's picturing the end as if it's one event, as if it's one mountain. But actually, it's two events in Mark 13. If you like, turn 90 degrees, the end of the temple is mountain one. But then behind it is hiding mountain two, which is the end of all things when Jesus is returned. That's why Mark 13 can be a little bit confusing because you think it's all about the one thing, but actually it's about two. And when we come to verse 24, Jesus fast forwards to talk about what happens after the destruction of the temple. And it makes it sound like it's immediately after, but we know it isn't because it still hasn't happened yet. But it's actually mountain two. So let's read uh, verse 24. And we're talking now about Jesus' second coming, the end of the world. Verse 24, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, this is important because if Mark 13 was only about the temple's end, then that would have been interesting for us. A little bit alarming, maybe fascinating that Jesus' words came true, but it wouldn't be directly relevant because that's all that happened 2,000 years ago. But if it's like these two mountains, if the temple's end is actually just a preview of a greater end that we're still waiting for, then you see Mark 13 is very relevant for us because we're situated in between those mountains. And so we need to remember Jesus' words here saying that he is coming back. Right? Jesus is coming back, not like when he first came and as a weak little baby wrapped in a manger, all humble, all little, needed to be cared for. No, no. When Jesus returns, it's going to be in his resurrected and glorified state. He's a little bit like um, the heir of a kingdom who leaves earth to, be go, to, to go back to heaven to be crowned as king. But then he's going to return to earth again to claim earth as his because he is now king over it. Right? That's the second coming. He's claiming that which is his. And on the day that he returns, the Bible says 
That's the day when judgment will happen. Every account will be settled. Every thought, word, and deed will be judged. There'll be no more secrets, everything exposed. And for those who belong to him, verse 27, it'll be good news because you'll be gathered to him forever. But for those who are not right with him, who don't belong to Jesus, who don't follow him and trust in him, well, it is something to be very, very nervous about because you're about to meet your judge and maker. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, how can we take that seriously? I mean, we're in a world where people will put up posters about tsunamis hitting Sydney and never happening. How do we know that this isn't one of those, oh, yeah, the end's going to come, and it's never gonna, but it's actually never going to happen? It's a good question. But key difference, isn't it? The difference between Jesus' words here and the tsunami poster is this actually is from the mouth of Jesus. Right? These are recorded words of Jesus. Accurate recorded words of Jesus. And he was not wrong about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, was he? Very accurate. Right? He's got evidence to back it up. And so when he says he's coming back to judge... We've got reason to believe this is not one of those wacky posters about the end. This is going to happen. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves is, are we ready? Are we ready? But that's not all. If you're a gamer, or if you like watching Marvel movies, and that probably, hopefully, captures most people here, you'll know what an Easter egg is. You guys know what an Easter egg is? Not, not the Easter eggs you look for an Easter but it's, it's because Easter eggs are hidden and, you know, you go find Easter eggs. Well, game, uh, game designers and movie makers, especially Marvel movies, they love putting little, little hints. And if you've got eyes to see, you'll find the little Easter eggs, all right? Little hints that have reference to other uh, ones of their movies or, or stuff that happens outside of their universe. Just really interesting things. Well, Mark has lots of Easter eggs in this chapter for eyes, if you've got eyes to see. And I want to show you some of these Easter eggs because Mark 13 isn't just about the end of the temple as a preview to the end of the world. It's actually going to have a preview of the preview. Okay, let me, let me show you what I mean. If you look in Mark, you'll see in this chapter that there is an end of the world moment that will happen not even 40 years down the track, but it'll happen within the timeline of Mark's gospel itself. In fact, some of this end of the world stuff will begin next chapter. Sort of like Mark's Easter eggs. He puts it in chapter 13, so when you read chapters 14, 15, and 16, you'll notice them. And he's describing an end of the world moment that you don't even have to wait for the temple of destruction in AD 70 to taste. These are the previews of the preview. Let me just go through a few of them with you. In Mark 13, he talks a number of times. Jesus says, keep watch, be on guard. That's the big theme, right? And he also says at, towards the end, don't let the owner come back and find you sleeping. Well, when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, he tells his disciples, keep watch, be on guard, pray. But then he comes back and he finds them what? Sleeping. He says in chapter 13, verse 35, don't, you know, the owner's going to come. You don't know whether he's going to come at evening, midnight, rooster crows, dawn. Those four markers of time. Really interesting when you get to chapters 14 and 15. Those happen to be four markers of time that Mark picks up over the last day of Jesus' life. The evening is the last supper. The midnight is when he's arrested in the garden. The rooster crows, you may know about Peter, denies him three times. At dawn, Jesus before Pilate. Markers of time. 
And then he tells people, when this happens, run away and don't even go back and take your cloak. You get this really interesting detail when Jesus is arrested of a young man running and he's naked. Why put that in, Mark? Maybe it's an Easter egg. He talks about unequal distress. Well, the next time we read about unequal distress, it's Jesus' distress, isn't it? As he's in the garden, he's saying, God, take this cup away from me. And he's sweating blood. The abomination that causes desolation. Well, what greater abomination is there than the Son of God crucified? The cross is the utter abomination that also causes desolation because everyone deserts Jesus, including God the Father when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cosmic signs, the solar eclipse is one of them. Jesus' death, solar eclipse. People will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, the resurrection and Jesus is going back into heaven in the clouds is from one perspective, the Son of Man coming. Well, from our perspective, are going, but from God's perspective, are coming to Him to receive glory and honor and power. The angels, the last one, messengers sent to gather the elect. Well, after Jesus' resurrection, actually, before He even goes up to heaven, what does He say? He says, I'm going to send you out to preach the gospel. And the word angels is actually the word messengers. Now, some of you will be like, oh, this is cool. Others will be like, yeah, I'm not really convinced. It doesn't really matter whether you're convinced or not. I think there's something to it. But the main point this is going to make, and the main point I want to make from this, um, you don't even have to make it from Mark 13. And it's the point that the end, as far as the Bible's concerned, is tied up with the events of Easter, Jesus' death and resurrection. You don't have to have Mark 13 with the Easter eggs to be convinced of that. The rest of the Bible talks about Jesus' death and resurrection as the end of the world or as an end of the world event. And so you get passages, I'll quote for you, 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. If you're in Christ, the old is gone, the new is here. If you like, it's not two peaks, but three. Front on, it's just one mountain. Side on, there's actually Jesus' death and resurrection. Then you've got the temple's destruction and then also his second coming. Because if you think about it, that's what the cross and the resurrection are. It's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Right? The end of the world is when God is supposed to pronounce his verdict and judgment on sin and its effects. Well, that happens in the cross, isn't it? God's verdict comes on sin. The twist is, of course, Jesus goes and dies in the place of sinners. And so the old is gone. The end is supposed to be the beginning of a new order where God is back in authority and he is restoring all things. Well, that happens also when Jesus rises from the dead. Right? He is crowned to be the one in authority over all things. And new life begins because Jesus rose again. Jesus' death and resurrection is an end time event. And so you need to know if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what this means is, if you come to Jesus, then God's sentence of judgment over anything that you've done, that's already happened in Jesus. And if your trust in, is in Jesus for forgiveness, then you can be confident that God's sentence 
has gone on Jesus instead of you. You can be forgiven. You can be free. You can have new life now. You can have a brand new start. Or as 2 Corinthians says, you can have the new creation begun now. If you turn to Jesus, then you can do that today. Put your trust in Him. Follow Him. Your sins will be forgiven. You can be guaranteed of a brand new start now and into eternity. Final point. This means that for us, life now is life in the end, isn't it? Right? It's not just something that will happen. We are already in the end, says the New Testament. In the last days. The end is something that is both now and to come. It's a bit confusing thinking, how can it be both now and to come? I, I like to think about it a little bit like arriving by plane into a city. When you're flying over a city and you've basically arrived over Sydney, come home, whatever... It's still going to take you an hour, half an hour at least, before the plane lands. You're already in Australian airspace. You're already in Sydney. You've arrived. But you better not get out of your seats, undo your seatbelt, grab your lug and jump out of the plane yet because you're going to die. Right? Because until the plane lands and comes to a full stop, you can't exit the plane. You're here, but you're not here yet. Do you see what I mean? That's the situation we're in. We're like those people who've arrived, but we're waiting for the plane to land. That's what it means to be living in the end. And so the end of Mark 13, those last few verses, they're really the take-home for us because there's still things that are to happen. And so Jesus' words are still really relevant. So let's finish up by looking at the last few verses. Verse 32. But about that day or hour, now he's talking about the second coming now, not about the temple's destruction, but the second coming, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So don't listen to people who say, you know, Jesus is going to return on whatever day. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So if you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, what is your state of readiness? What is your state of alertness for the time when your Lord returns suddenly? Because so much of the New Testament is about that, and yet when was the last time you and I woke up in the morning and thought, this could be the day, and am I ready for him to come? Now, it would be a separate series of sermons to talk about what being alert and watchful might be. I'm just going to run through four very quick points, and I made them memorable. So they're all going to start with P. Four things that I think very quickly we'll run through to summarize what the New Testament says about life of preparedness, if you're really prepared for Jesus returning. Number one is the priority of preaching. And this is not just about what I do, but it's about preaching as in evangelism, sharing the gospel, but none of those things start with peace, so I'm just going to go with preaching, okay? There's an urgency that if Jesus can come back tomorrow, today even, that we need to be sharing the news of Jesus and giving people the opportunity to turn back to Him. So get going with those surveys. They're important. Get inviting. Get speaking. It's priority. Then there's going to be the perseverance in pain. If Jesus is coming back, the New Testament says you can endure. 
Because as Romans says, your present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, and it could be tomorrow. So if you're in pain, and I know a lot of you, some of you are, hang on there, hang in there. And thirdly, it's going to give you perspective on pleasure. Because everything in this world is going to pass away. The things that you feel like you're going to miss out on in order to perhaps devote more time and energy and money to preaching and helping others come to know Jesus. Those things you're going to miss out on, yeah, they're pleasurable, but you know what? They're not as important. I may never get to take my wife Karen to Paris. I hope I do one day. I've never been. She's never been. She'd love to go. But you know what? If we never get to go in this life, it's okay because I'm pretty sure the Paris of the new creation will be even better. And I'll have eternity to get there. So it's fine. I can miss out on Paris now. Right? It gives you a perspective on pleasure. And last of all, of course, it's going to give you a passion for purity. 2 Peter says, Since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. You don't want your Lord to come back and for you to be caught in knowing sin. You will be forgiven because He's already forgiven you, but it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? Right? So have a passion for purity. Or I've heard one person say, you know what, if we did this, life would be so different. If we lived every day as though Jesus died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow, think how different life would be. Let's pray, let's get the band up and we'll sing before we finish up.